Canucks. Central Wednesday. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. We are in the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. So uh, a lot to come here on the show. Kevin Woodley going to join us, and it is Wednesday. So, yes, you know, overrated or underrated is coming your way as well. Uh, always like to get those in. 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. If you have a submission, we'll uh, maybe read it after 4 o'clock today. But uh, Sat, game one of the second round in the books. Got a couple of really uh, good games. Especially the performance out of Joe Pavelski, hey? Man, the ageless wonder. I mean, he's an artist. My biggest takeaway watching him was he's just an artist on the ice. <laughs> because like the way he's honed his ability to tip pucks yes. and his hand-eye coordination yes. and how he finds space, it's honestly artistic how he plays. Like he, He's not going to beat you with, spa- with speed. He's not going to beat you with physicality. He's not going to even beat you with this incredible you know, skill with puck handling. It's more about finding space, having great hand-eye coordination, and just playing the game with its flow. He just finds space. Um, you know, there's times in your career as a professional athlete, because I would know, having not been one my entire life. Um, <laughs> but there's certain things you can do at certain ages, and then once you get older... The details matter so much more and honing those details, honing those specific areas of the game. And I kind of like when players are like, instead of me trying to fix my weakness, why don't I just try mm-hmm. and be the best at this thing? Yes. And uh, that's kind of what Joe Pavelski has done with the Dallas Stars and how he's been so productive through his uh, late stages of his career. Yeah, and if you missed our chat with Yannick Hansen last Friday, we yeah. actually we spoke about players who aren't the fastest but find space, have kind of spatial awareness. And, you know, he mentioned we in, in his time with the Sharks, he was there when Pavelski was there. Yeah. And Pavelski left to go sign with the Dallas Stars. He got a big contract, and Yannick said, oh, I thought, hey, you know, he's not going to be able to live up to that money. And he's gone there, and he's been incredible, right? He scored, yeah. you know, scoring twenty-seven goals. He's a point-per-game player. He's had his most productive season in his career last year, didn't he? Yeah, at the age thirty-seven. Yep, it's been wild. And you know, like think about the uh, you know the Pedersen flu game. Yeah, and that also happened against Seattle, actually. Mm. Um, See, it doesn't seem to deter them too much. Though. Yes, uh, they they lost that game, the Pedersen flu game, yes. where he came back from being ill and just dominated. Had an incredible night, five points. And led the Canucks, like, dragged the Canucks to a win. And, like, we talked about that as, like, how crazy is it that he was able to do that and, you know, not feeling well and still being able to to drag the team in the way that he did. And here's 38-year-old Joe Pavelski coming off a concussion and scoring four goals in a playoff game, for Christ's sake. Yeah, it's it's honestly, it's one of the greatest feats we've seen in playoff history, right? Like, given the context, like, individual performances, there's some guys who scored five, but still, he's got four of them. It, It was really astonishing to watch. And I've seen the discussions. I've seen a lot of people talk about what does this mean for JT Miller, for instance? Is this something that you can look at and say, well, if Pavelski ages this way, can JT age this way? They're completely different players. Yeah, you can count on one hand how many guys have aged this well into their late 30s. Yeah, complete outliers, right? Yeah. That's not to say JT can't age well, but I just caution people in terms of the example, very different hockey players. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Now, they are similar in, in terms of being very good playmakers, both of them. They're both very good on the power play as well. Pavelski is a bit more, like, he creates offense with, with getting to the net and scoring. You know, he's really good at with the tips and everything like that, too. Whereas you watch JT Miller, you can do that, but it's more about his shot. Yeah. That, that's what's really deadly with him. He plays a bit differently, but he's a real good productive player on the power play. The one thing that does carry over is power play production. Yeah. So if you look at JT, he's been an ace on the power play. It's more a stationary position. As long as he has talent around him, I don't see that portion of his game falling apart. But if you want to age well into your 30s, now forget JT just for any player, to mm-hmm. your point, I think it comes down to mastering a few different things. Um, AP and Langley saying JT Miller will be the next Joe Pavelski by the end of his contract. Bo will not. I will tell you that for free. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, okay, so we'll get the I'll tell you I'll tell you that for free jokes until uh, the end of time now on Canuck Central. Now, in fairness to Bo, he, what did he hone in on this year? His shot and tipping his, shots and tipping shots as well. Right. That can age well. Yep. That type of stuff. Right. That can age well. It comes it didn't down carry to over into uh, onto the island, though. No, it didn't. But at the same time, I mean, he still had a 38 goal season. Yes. You know, like at the end of the day, I think. Bo didn't get the 40, 50 goals, even 60 goals that was talked about. But he scored, still scored 38. Yeah. And the reason he got the 38 is because he worked on a shot over the course of the offseason. Now he had some percentages going his way. But he scored a ton around the net, especially with tip-ins, right? That's something that he excelled at and got a lot better at. I think if you are going to age well outside of fitness stuff and how you take care of yourself, it's doing certain things that can carry over. Yeah. Your hand-eye coordination, for instance. You see that too, like with golfers. Now they have obviously primes a bit earlier, yes. but how many guys play really well in their late thirties into their early forties? It's it's more about, I think from from an NHL perspective, for me, it's you know we talk about when you talk about prospects, like what's going to get them to the NHL, right? What, yeah. like what's their skill that translates? Uh, what's their one thing that gives them? NHL upside and I think as you get older it's about honing those skills that keep you in the NHL as a player and uh, we see the best of the best with Joe Pavelski so far and uh, came in a losing cause for the Dallas Stars but still pretty incredible and Seattle winning that one 5-4 in overtime with the goal from Yanni Gord so uh, we'll talk about the uh, other teams a little bit later on Mm -hmm. This is not uh, Leaf Central, so we won't get into that just quite yet. <laughs> we'll talk about the goaltending with uh, Kevin Woodley coming up a bit later. But every year we always, uh, you know, you kind of look at the first round exits and there's that sort of narrative of, well, a team loses in the first round. You know, they're they're going to try and do some things that put them over the top, which, you know, I don't know why you would phrase it that way. It's just like if a team doesn't win a Stanley cup or they feel like they fall short of expectations or trying to get better, or guess what? Every team generally tries to get better unless they make a decision of we're tanking right. for the next couple of years. So most teams are always trying to get better. It doesn't matter if they lose in the first round or whenever reality is though, a lot of teams are capped out. We talked about this with Frank Saravalli on Monday. Mm-hmm. And if you go through some of the teams that have exited the Stanley Cup playoffs already, there could be some very interesting players that become available in the NHL. Just off of those eight teams that have been, you know, kicked out of the Stanley Cup playoffs already. Yeah, and we can't discuss this about Boston. It's going to be hard for them to be as good next season 
if Bergeron doesn't come back for a cheap rate because they don't have a lot of cap space. Yeah. You know, they have a lot of free agents, not a lot of cap space. How are they going to become a better hockey team next season? It seems like a tall, tall order. Same thing for the Colorado Avalanche. They have, what, $13 million in cap space and a bunch of players to sign? A whole lot of players to sign, the including Min- Bo and Byram. The Minnesota Wild probably have to trade somebody to sign all their players. Yes, and they just signed Marcus Johansson to a two-year extension Yeah, at $4 million. So, you know, Boston's going to be in real tough to keep everybody around. We talked about this with Frank. Guys like Grizzlick, Carlo, yeah. uh, they've got a couple of unrestricted free agents, maybe one that is most intriguing, Connor Clifton is an unrestricted free agent right shot defender that's played really well in a third pair role. Um, the Rangers, I mean... Yeah, they have $12 million in cap space, but like a lot of it is, has to come down to signing their own guys. Like Keandre Miller is going to take up a huge part of that. Yeah, Keandre Miller is getting paid yeah. this offseason. And I think the, like the Rangers, they kind of feel like a team that they need to shake it up. At least that's the narrative that seems to be coming out of New York after their exit meetings and how that whole first round series played out. Coach. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's just Gallant's fault, but I would be careful with tinkering too much with that lineup. Yeah. They have a lot of good talent and they have a lot of versatility throughout their lineup. I'd rather change the coach with Mm -hmm. that team and see how they respond next year. And still have to make some moves, yeah? It's going to be complicated. Can you bring Kako back? Yeah. Can you bring bring Lafreniere back? Do you have to make a decision on someone somewhere? Like, Does that have to happen? Sure. But I want to bring back the the, the vast majority of, of that core if I'm the New York Rangers. Uh, Keandre Miller and Alexis Lafreniere both need new contracts as restricted free agents. Uh, Patrick Kane, Vladimir Tarasenko, UFAs, they probably hit the market. Uh, Tyler Mott, uh, it sounded like he's uh, more open to staying with New York this year after getting traded at the deadline. Uh, so uh, and don't Ty- expect him to be a UFA again. No, and Tyler Mott, given what we've seen, not only the trade from Vancouver, where Vancouver got a, what, a fourth-round pick for him, which yeah. was actually higher than what, whatever they got this year, which was a seventh-round pick he got traded for, whatever it was. Didn't have a huge year. Didn't get a huge contract. He's probably signing for about a million or so, yeah. right? Uh, I wonder if it, like they can try to trade a Barclay Goudreau to open up some cap space, but uh, good luck with that and the length of term he has left on his contract. And Kako is the one where you know he mentioned he wants more ice time next year. Yeah. Can you bring him back or do you make a move? We kind of see this a lot with some of these teams that have accumulated a lot of these prospects. Yeah. Now, look, it's still at the end of the day a good problem to have. You know, these guys have trade value and Oh, for sure. They're talented players. But even the LA Kings, like I'm going through their roster a little bit, Sat, and like they're gonna have to do something here. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been knocking at the door, they can't get by the Edmonton Oilers. I, I don't foresee them making any like massive changes, but just a quick glance at their cap friendly. They've got two and a half million in cap space going into the summer. Yeah. So that's not very much. They have to sign their biggest upcoming contract would be Gabe Velarde, who is going to need a new deal. They've got a bunch of RFAs, guys like Rasmus Kapari and Jared Anderson, yeah. Dolan, Leas Anderson. So like all these young guys that they'd been accumulating and haven't really been able to give big ice time to or big opportunity to are coming up. So they're not going to be expensive, but the wonder is, you know, how many of those guys are like, I also want a bigger opportunity somewhere because I feel like I deserve it. Yeah. And you're getting to a point now where 
the waiver ineligibility is going to change. Yeah. Some of these guys are going to become waiver eligible. Now, so far... Anderson lot, Dolan, I think, is uh, yeah, waivers eligible he, he now. does not. Yeah, he does not. He requires waivers to go down. Same with Lias Anderson. Now, Lias Anderson, obviously, it's a bit different with his situation. So what it comes down to is, in about a year's time or six months' time, depending on how much more service, depending on the player, a lot of these guys, whether it's Turcotte, whether it's Madden, or whether it's Fajimo, or Akil Thomas even, or even go on the back end, look at some of these guys, Hellgate Grons, for instance, you're going to start getting to a point where they're either going to be on your team, or yeah. they're going to be exposed to waivers, or you got to trade them. And their value goes down the closer to get to being waiver eligible, because yep. your leverage changes. This is the summer if you're moving guys to move guys. Uh, they probably move guys like uh, one of Sean Walker or uh, Matt Roy to open up some cap space on the back end and maybe open up some opportunity for uh, one of their younger players. But, yeah. I mean, they've just got so much talent. Even guys like Alex Turcott, you know, can't break through. And I know he's had the, the injury troubles, but, you know, I feel like L.A., especially if they want to make another move to – you know, add another big piece, you know, they are, they're going to have to move cap and then they could potentially use some of the good young talent that they've got. I, I, I like of all the guys that I, you know, keep coming back to though. And anybody who's been listening knows I like Rasmus Kapari is like one guy that's oh, like circled for me as I really like this player. I like this player too. I don't know if you're getting him. No, probably not. he's playing for the Kings in the playoffs. Yeah, not a ton of production. He was. Uh, not a ton, but not a know. ton of production. But I've I've actually liked his game as a bottom six center. He, he um, can play center. Like yeah. he can legitimately play center. Good defensively. Mm -hmm. um, he's played fast. on the PK for them a bunch this year. He's got size too. Like, yeah, he's not a small hockey player. Kind of looks like a good fit for a third line center, yeah, uh, which is what the Canucks need. <laughs> it just, you know, I, I just think it's very unlikely. Yeah, I and know, he's so cheap but. for them, and it's like he can play such a meaningful role. They can probably get him signed to a cheap extension as well. I just the lack of production keeps his number pretty low. Makes it easy for them to keep yeah. him around, right? But I'm with you. Like that's the type of player that this team could could really use. It's just what does it require for you to pry that player away from somebody? The name that. Um, Everybody has brought up a thousand times another Dan Milstein client because uh, right. the Canucks are gold star. Um, Vladislav Gavrikov is a UFA, was with the LA Kings, liked his game a bunch in the first round. I mean, there's only so much you can do when Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl <laughs> are playing like that. But, um, you know, Elliot kind of mentioned it on 32 Thoughts a couple of weeks ago that he heard the LA Kings offered something in the range of $5 million per. That's not something the Canucks can really even no. begin to approach if Gavrikov is looking for more than $5 million per. Yeah, and I think he's also mentioned the tax situation is going to matter as well for mm -hmm. him and how he's going to handle that. And we talked about how there are ways around it, but if you really want to look at truly maximizing it, there are places you can go where you get the most you can possibly get. It seems like money is a huge motivator for him. Yeah, like, which is fine, but it's like it's like the motivation. For him. <laughs> yeah, which yeah, it's totally fine. But he's transparent. You know what I like about it? He's very transparent. Yeah, about it. I want to get the biggest contract I can possibly get. Yeah, and to pay the least amount of taxes possible. Yes. Um. So does he end up in Florida somehow? Maybe he does. Uh, yeah, I mean, he but makes there's other sense. spots. Yeah, he he makes like a team like the Panthers, for instance. Yeah. If they, they can, have, if they have some space. Yeah, if they can create some space, he makes a lot of sense on their left side. I bring this up just to say, because we always get the questions about it, Gavrikov, probably not going to be a Vancouver Canuck, uh, for those that are wondering about that as we get closer and closer to free agency. Uh, some other interesting players on some other teams, 
Scott Mayfield with the New York Islanders is an unrestricted free agent, right shot. Uh, Tampa Bay, they're going to lose Alex Kalorn, some other UFAs as well. I think uh, Michael Asamont might be this summer's Michael Bunting. Yeah, yeah. Um, cheap guy is a group six free agent and probably signs a cheap deal somewhere, but is a player that a lot of people think has more to give is one of those late bloomers like a Michael Bunting. And then Winnipeg, we all know their situation with a lot of change coming with the Winnipeg Jets. But even a guy like uh, Axel Janssen Fialbi is sort of interesting as a group six free agent. Speed, has some size, uh, can play physical, gets in on the four check. Canucks need more four checkers, right? Those are the types of names to keep an eye on. Yeah. Um, and right now you look at the Canucks roster, you're like, well, where's your room for another guy to come in? You also have to keep in mind they're probably going to look to subtract. And if you get rid of one of your wingers too, it creates another spot. They, I would be surprised if they don't sign at least one player who's a good four checker yeah. in free agency. And it doesn't have to be a big contract. It could be a smaller one. And there, there are a lot of players. And I think Janssen Fialbi kind of fits that mold. Do you get him in here on a one-year deal, a two-year deal? Kind of like the Dakota jo- Joshua deal. Yeah. 900000 850000 maybe a million or something. Stuff that you can easily move down. Mm-hmm. And maybe you find something there. You're probably going to look to find another Dakota Joshua. Yeah. They, like, he profiles as the kind of guy that they want yeah. in that bottom six. I don't know how many times Rick Tockett mentioned it, but we need more four checkers. Yeah. And those are the <laughs> so types that's, of players. Like, we, we, we have a good indication of what the Canucks are looking for this offseason. Yeah. A third and, line center, some help on D, and better four checking. And I think given their cast situation and just kind of going through this list and you look at it and you're kind of like, well, they're probably not going to have the money to sign Gavrikov. No. And even a player like Evan Rodriguez, who... With Colorado. Colorado. Yeah. He had a good year. Are they going to have enough space to sign him? You have to clear significance. He's going to sign for at least $3 million. Yep. They had interest in him last summer. Yeah, they did. But do you have enough space to go and sign him? I can see the cheaper end of things because you can always add guys for a million or less and make it work. Yeah. And I think they'll dip into that market. The rest is going to be difficult. And that's why the one guy I do find somewhat interesting in terms of some size, toughness, but also leadership-wise, you know, being the positive guy, being the fun guy, is Ryan Reeves. Interesting. Because the organization, well, not the organization, Rutherford traded for Ryan Reeves, traded him away as well, but traded yeah. for him with Pittsburgh. Uh, everybody's going to say on the text box, traded a first-round pick for Ryan Reeves. That was a terrible trade. It was it was more of a pick swap. Go yeah. back and look at the deal. A late first for an early second. Yeah, they, they moved down in the second. Like, yeah. they moved down a little bit in the draft. It wasn't like they traded a first-round pick for Ryan Reeves clean. Yes. That's, that's not what happened. Yes. There's something else involved. Yes, but but the point being, they still traded for him. Yes. And they traded him away, uh, which is fine, for Derek Broussard, who was a good player for them for a couple of years. But nonetheless, at this point, he's 36, getting healthy, scratched a lot. He's not signing probably for 1.6 again or whatever it is. Yeah. It's probably closer to a million dollars. I wouldn't be shocked. Like, does he not kind of make sense in terms of toughness, leadership, you know, the, the, the fun guy, guy chirper guy in the room and everything? He's known as a good guy to have around. Like, that's a type of leader that's cheap that I can see them going after. I, I could see it. You know, they want the whole toughness thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're looking for more of those leadership types. It's just, you know, one thing, how many more bottom six wingers can they, they really keep, like, add to this roster? I think there's room for... So him... It, it you, really depends on who they move out. Yeah, I mean, there, I think there's room for two additions yeah. in the bottom, but one's a 13 forward. Because even if... Okay, you move Garland. Like you've still got Pod Colson and Kravtsov and Well, Kravtsov, I, 
Hoaglander, like yeah. all the like you have other guys still knocking on the door for NHL opportunities. Mm-hmm. Now maybe they're not necessarily bottom six types, but are all those guys coming back? Did Giuseppe is not going anywhere. He's back on the team next year. He is, but I mean he's gonna have to fight for that spot. Yeah. You know? Like That's in fair. training camp, you know, he's not making a ton, so he's going to have to fight for that spot. Like right now, if you look at the Canucks roster, they don't have a third-line center signed, and they have 12 forwards on the contract. Yeah. Kraftsov doesn't have a deal yet. So if you sign Kraftsov, so you, you can have one addition. You need a center. You mm-hmm. have to add a center somewhere. You move a forward, you can add another guy. So I think there's room for a couple of those types of additions, and they'll fight for spots. And even if you sign Ryan Reeves to one-year deal worth a million, he's probably not playing for you every single night. Yeah. It's probably your 13th. And forward. even when his play time dries up, uh, he's like, there's always a team willing to trade for Ryan Reeves. Yeah, if that happens or whatever, right? <laughs> like it happened with New York, it happened with Vegas, it yeah, happened with uh, Minnesota. Yeah. You know, everybody's, it seems like Ryan Reeves has, has always had some level of trade value around the league. Uh, the other uh, parts with Minnesota, Dumba and uh, John Klingberg are UFAs. Yeah. And, you know, too Kling- expensive. Too expensive. And the only way it makes sense is if they take cheap one-year deals to rebuild value, which I don't see from Klingberg after already signing a one-year deal. He's probably looking for some level of security it's here. It's such a bad season. I know. But, I mean, how many years can you sign one-year deals, right? Yeah. Uh, do you just kind of... We'll see, right? But I don't know if he's going to sign for $2 million or $3 million. But, like, even, like, three years, $12 million. Like, I don't know if that's even out there on the table for... for yeah, I'm not sure right if now. it is. I mean... Man, his agent messed up. He could have signed a contract worth $50 million and he signed a contract worth $7 million this offseason. I think he was offered 8 by 8 by Dallas. It was close to that. It was a huge contract. Yeah. And he got nothing near it, and he fired his agent. Yeah. But, I mean, like, how do you overcome that like, psychologically? I don't know. That's tough, man. Like, you know, I don't care how good— like, You, you know, leave—okay, let's just conservatively say it was a $50 million deal. We yes. know Dallas had a significant contract offer— yes. Maybe it was eight table. times seven. Right. Whatever. But still, that's $56 million. That's 56 So, like, there was a significant contract Even offer on the table. Even seven times seven is 49 You're like, no, we'll get more in free agency. Like, you sure about this? Yeah. You now, sure about that? <laughs> you sure about that? I'm not so sure. Now, you know, he was coming off a decent contract. Yeah. But even then, like, he came off a contract and getting paid, like, six or something. And he yeah. thought he was going to cash in for a lot bigger. So, essentially, he's got, he feels he probably lost somewhere from 40 to $50 million, at least. Yeah. And he's probably not making that back. No, you. Uh, he might be lucky to make twenty over the course of his career. Now twenty over the rest of his career. Like, I mean, it's, it's a lot of it's money. Either bet on yourself again and go for a short-term deal, and you know, pick your spot. Hopefully, you go somewhere where you play power play one. But you know, it was it worked out awfully in Anaheim for him. Yeah, so it's going to have to be cheap on, on those on those ends. And again, Vancouver's going to have to clear a bunch of cap space. I think it makes more sense for Vancouver to trade for a defenseman and trade for a center. Yeah, you know, like, and that's shifting the money out. Do you move Garland for a third line center? Yeah, type of deal like we talked about before. Do you move one of your wingers for a defenseman, mm-hmm. or do you move a defenseman for another defenseman? Are you able to move any significant money out? On the back end. Yeah. I.e. Tyler Myers. Yeah. Like, for instance, could you move Myers for, for a contract that has a bit more term? Yeah. Like on we, the, on we, the cheaper side? We made the example, and I'm not saying make this deal, for instance, but Marcus Pedersen has, what, two years left on his contract? Yeah. Three, four point something. You know, you save a little bit of money now. Now you're adding a couple of years on the books, but what you're getting is a defenseman who may fit what you're looking for. Now, I just use him as an example. I'm not actually a big fan of trading for him, but that's just an example off the top of my head in terms of a player. I can see them exploring something along those lines. Uh, love the text. We'll get to some of those. Also, uh, we have Kevin Woodley, who's going to join us, continuing to cover the Seattle Kraken and the Stanley Cup playoffs. Also, his take on uh, some of the goalie 
things happening around these Stanley Cup playoffs. That's next on Canuck Central. The most opinionated Canucks show out there. Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drans. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Canuck Central in the Kintec studio. Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. I uh, I know we all uh, we all took joy in seeing that there are two people who enjoy <laughs> hate watching the Toronto Maple Leafs more than anybody else. You know what? I just they call put their money where their mouth is. You know what? I just call them great hockey fans. <laughs> great hockey fans showing up to a game to cheer against the team, but to watch NHL hockey. The thing that don't get me uh, that got me was. Why are these people wasting their money to go watch teams they don't like? It's like you're going to watch NHL hockey. Yeah, it's like going to the movies. Why are you going to watch them? Well, I'm going to the movies to be entertained. I, I think it's uh, it's great that they're like the two biggest celebrities in hockey right now. It's great. Everybody's writing stories about the two people who uh, watch every Leaf game in the opposing team uniform uh, in Toronto. It's uh, pretty wild. Uh, let's bring in our next guest. He joins us every Wednesday. The goalie guru in Goal Magazine. And covers the Canucks at NHL.com. Currently covering the Stanley Cup playoffs at NHL.com. It is Kevin Woodley. What's happening, Woodley? Not much. Imagine, like, like, do you have to, like, have a dedicated closet for that? Like, that is not an insignificant <laughs> commitment to jerseys for... Yeah, never mind know, the season seats at, like, the most expensive barn in the, in the league. Uh, you're also getting 31 jerseys. I guess teams? to your point, if you can afford those tickets, you can afford to buy a whole bunch of jerseys, and you probably got a space big enough to store them all. Yeah, yeah. I, I think honestly, I think they're great hockey fans. That's how I view it. <laughs> Have you probably a lot of people in Vancouver that agree with you, Seth? <laughs> uh, do you like? Do you hate watch teams, Woodley? No, you know it's funny. Like I've I've heard that I've heard that discussion. I just. I don't. I mean, are there teams that I cheer to lose in across a variety of sports when I watch them? Yeah, for sure. But if I'm watching them in the playoffs, it's because it's the playoffs and it's on the biggest stage, not because I want to see it. Like, I'd never watch right. just to see a team lose. Like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just that's that's uh, just that's not my thing you're you're too nice of a guy that's why i've got more important things in (laughs) life i would like to think than committing my time just to watch a team lose if it's a big moment and they're in it i will cheer against them well yeah but watching just for that like that's I almost said beneath me, but uh, I'd like to think it is a little bit. Apologies to anybody who does it. Uh, Speaking of more important things, how's your gecko? Um, Chameleon. Chameleon, sorry. Fine, thank you very much. Yeah, she's she's doing just fine. Little little eye issue, but we got that all cleared up. Yes. And uh, much to my wife's chagrin, the chameleon has survived. <laughs> She's very cute, by the way, the chameleon. I saw photos. But anyways, uh, moving to moving to uh, the playoffs, and let's start. We, we mentioned the super fans, so let's start with a series between the Leafs uh, and the Florida Panthers. I mean, break it down for us. Samson Obrobrovsky, like, what's going on after the first game? Well, it, they're both Jekyll and Hyde, right? Yeah. Like, you know, somebody somebody sent me a note last night, like, can Bob channel Vesna trophy winning Bob throughout the playoffs? And my response was, he doesn't have to, he has to do, do it four out of every seven games. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. cause consistency has been the issue. And even last night, 
there are moments where the same athleticism that allows him to make saves that can change a game or keep them alive in a game. I think of that, you know, that right to left push on the the two on one down low late in the game, although they had a two goal cushion, but you never know what happens if, if Toronto gets one with all their firepower, like the same things that allow him to make some of those saves tend also to get him in trouble. Like, there can be an overaggression. Uh, there can be too much movement that costs him at times. I mean, even on the Nye's goal, um, you know, as, as much as we applauded the move that Nye's made and it was worthy of, 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 a, of appreciation, where was he going? Like, where are you going? Yeah. Like, you're not in the picture anymore. I feel like when I was at the, the Cannes tournament and Chris Higgins had a breakaway and he faked me. And, and honestly, by the time he put it into the empty net, the, the best news for me is I was so far out of the picture that I wasn't in any photos because I had gone, <laughs> I had bit so hard. Like both of these goalies have an element of that to them. Like how many times have we seen Sansonov give up a goal where he's not even in the net? And Bob has that, I don't say ability, but he certainly has that in him too. And so, you know, it's almost like um, who can sort of find enough consistency and enough of those big nights and like I said, like, because I don't think you, truth, truth be told, I don't think you can expect seven of them out of either of these guys. Like, that's just the reality. It's who can find four of them or get bailed out often enough that they only need three. And there's a little bit of that going on throughout the playoffs, you know. Um, you know, I, I was looking at, you know, ClearSight sort of top ten goals saved above expected for the regular season. There's only one goalie left from there, and that's Jake Ottinger. And Seattle hung four on him in one period last night. So, um, you know, as much as, the goalie union is going to come take away my card if I keep saying this. <laughs> it really is. You know, it's gone from goaltending doesn't exist in a vacuum as, as my catchphrase, like like teams, team play matters, to I almost want to say team play matters more. And we're seeing that in these playoffs. It's a team that's able to dictate to their terms outside of a few instances. And Shishkerkin, um, you know, bailing out the Rangers almost enough to get them through would be one of them. But for the most part, it's the team that's able to dictate terms in terms of what they want to play what they want to achieve both offensively and defensively to the point where you know goaltending i don't say it's irrelevant because vtech vanacek for the first two games of that jersey series you know if you don't have it you're in trouble but it's just like a lot of teams they don't they don't need spectacular they just need don't screw up make the saves you're supposed to make and that's kind of where we're at right now and it kind of follows that colorado rattle model um that won a cup last season yeah, and you know, uh, speaking of which, you know, like um, I, I kind of think that's what's been going well for for Grubauer. Like even in, uh, in in Game Seven, you know, he just made a bunch of saves. Well, made more saves than the other guy, and that's kind of been a trend. His offense has, has started to pick up around the league, Woodley, where it's just make more saves than the other guy, and uh, that's that's kind of at least from a basis point for Seattle, that's kind of been their motto all season long. Because I wouldn't say their goaltending's been great at any point this year. It's just they've been able to make more saves than the the guy on the other side. Yeah, no, like, hey, listen, so, like, 100% it's about how they play. Um, and they've done a really nice job in front of Grubauer of sort of mitigating his exposure. Like, there are elements of Grubauer's game that can be exposed but they play in a way where they don't allow it to be exposed as much. Um, his screen numbers are off the charts, like best in the, in the NHL so far. Uh, and part of that is ability to stay at the top of his crease. Now we saw last night about Dallas did a good job, better job than Colorado did, frankly, pushing him back a little bit. Um, and there were times where he was playing a little bit because he was engaged with and caught up uh, with the screening player. 
And that will be something to watch as this series goes on. Because in Colorado, he's able to get to the top of the paint, stay at the top of the paint, stay comfortable. And then anything that's spilled off him, and it's usually to the sides because he's got a narrower butterfly, um, but anything that's spilled off of him to the sides, Seattle usually won those battles. And so I'm kind of keeping an eye on two things there with Dallas that were sort of in my, my second round previews for NHL.com. Like, can you push him back in his crease? And if not, can you win the battles for those second pucks off to the side that Colorado wasn't? So I, I will push back a little bit on Grubauer's performance. Uh, I think in the regular season, what he finished with an 895, and everyone just said their goaltending sucked. Like his expected was 877 on the regular season. Um, you know, he was certainly not top 10 in the league by any stretch or even top 15, but he was in the, he was in the high 20s relative to his environment. He got a lot of tough starts earlier in the year. They didn't play well in front of him. And, and maybe some of that was a loss of faith in how he played last year as a team. And it took him a while to win that back to the point where he was getting good performances in front of him as opposed to the team trying to do too much and, you know how that is. Everybody's trying to do your job, and pretty soon nobody else is doing their own. And I think there was an element of that for him uh, at the start of the season. But his numbers across the board this year aren't bad. They're above expected. And in the playoffs, you know, going into last night, he led the league in goal saves. Like, there were moments in that first-round series uh, against Colorado where he was very much the story and I think there are parts, especially early in Game 7, where that was the case. So I give him a ton of credit for them getting through. As much as the support is in front of him and as much as Seattle's success is probably predicated at the other end by their ability to sustain that forecheck and overwhelm teams and not allow teams to attack, when they've gotten into Seattle's end, especially in that first round, Philip Grubauer was excellent. So with, with the Kraken, like, are they just like really good? You know, because we keep saying they're the underdog in all these games, and we had them that way against Colorado, and I guess they should have been. But it it almost – it's starting to feel like first-year Vegas where, you know, they spent the whole year trying to convince us they were good, but really they were just really good the whole time. Is that kind of where we're at with Seattle right now? I think there's an element of that. I think one of the things that led to some of their inconsistencies in the regular season is that the way they play – the key to their success, that forecheck that I talked about, like it's one thing to have depth. Um, depth allows you to have four lines that will play that way. But it's really hard to sustain that level of commitment and effort on the forecheck and discipline within, you know, within how they execute it over an 82-game season. And I think there were periods where there were just lulls, where – or they lost that focus, or they didn't get it from all four lines. And because they really are de- so dependent on it, um, it doesn't take much sort of breakdown from that for them to look very average. But now you're into the playoffs. And every shift, every game, every inch matters, and there's that focus as a group. And I think it's much easier to do the things that make them successful night in and night out when you have that, then it is through the season. Like there were signs of this team throughout the regular season, but it wasn't consistent. And when every time it waned, I think a lot of people looked at them and looked at some of their games within those moments and some of the results. And just like, you know, to be honest, I was there I was waiting for them to fall off, waiting for somebody to catch them. Yeah. You know, if there was a team in the Pacific that you expected to fall out and get caught and, and maybe end up out, it was probably them right from the start. But I think there were moments throughout the season that they showed when they get this execution level top to bottom, this is what they're capable of. Now they're also, the other part of that is, can you get the goaltending? Mm -hmm. 
And part of that is the commitment in front of him. But Grubauer has to deliver that. As much as I talk about him being better than the numbers showed in the regular season, that he's giving them a level they haven't had in these playoffs. And so you add that to that other mix. And yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's certainly, it's caught some teams off guard. It was too much for Colorado given their lack of depth. And yet that was a seven game series where, you know, the abs with pretty much four players still had enough to sort of push them to the brink. So let's see what Dallas and like, I'm not planning parade routes in Seattle just yet. I don't think it's fair to say like they're like they're a mm-hmm. cup favorite, but better than a lot of people thought. Yeah, I, I, I think they've shown that they're capable of being that team. And you know, again, we we saw what that forecheck did to Dallas, their ability to establish it and kind of flummox the stars um, early in that game, especially. I'm curious to see what the adjustments are. Can they sustain it? Yeah. Can the teams figure out a way to break it? Um, and if so. Does anyone force Seattle to make adjustments? Because right now they just are who they are. They just keep saying it and they just keep going out and doing it. This is our game plan. This is who we are. We know what it is. And if we execute, we have a chance. And so far when they execute, nobody's been able to tell them they don't. Yeah. I mean, I respect them so much more than I did. I'm not convinced, but I certainly respect them a lot more than I did, especially with how they've been able to get to the point they're at right now. Turning our sights to Edmonton and Vegas, who has the edge and goal? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, and I think this one may go down to who, who's going to be better able to insulate what's going mm-hmm. on in goal. Like, like Lorraine Boursois, you know, statistically, guys, in a small sample, even through the first round, Lorraine Boursois gives the Vegas or Golden Knights an advantage in goal. Mm-hmm. Um, Stuart Skinner, uh, for everything he accomplished, um, and as impressive it is, as it is given his lack of experience and the fact he's a first-year kind of NHLer and the All-Star game and all the things. Like, up until March 1st, he, had a, he was well below – um, like like almost like 0.7 below expected save percentage. Um, and a lot of what he was doing was courtesy of the fact that, and I've talked about this before, like Edmonton is like Toronto was a few years ago. Everybody thinks they're an offensive team that doesn't defend, and it's just not true. They defend very well. They insulate their goaltending. Um, the last month, six weeks of the season, Skinner really took a step. Like he was really good. We didn't see that guy in the first round. They're going to need that guy as they move forward. Uh, otherwise, we could see more of the other guy, frankly. And so because those questions linger, because of the inconsistencies we saw from Skinner in the first round, they, like, they got through with him being you know, below expected again. Um, I think it's fair to say that Vegas has an advantage. And yet, I think the advantage with the Oilers as a team, um, especially in, in the way they're cre- able to create dynamic offense, and if they ever go on the power play, it's, it's lights out. Like, no team is better equipped to negate that goaltending advantage in a hurry than the Edmonton Oilers are. So um, going in is one thing. Let's see if, I'm a- if I got the same answer to your question tomorrow night. And the other thing, too, is you know what the Oilers do really well? They rip apart opposing goaltenders with pre-scout and tendencies. Mm, yeah. And part of that is having the personnel and the power play to execute. Like, hey, this is a weakness. We need to create this type of scoring chance oh, by the way, it's also a really quality scoring chance on anyone, but it's going to really exacerbate this guy's weaknesses. They actually have the people that can go out and create those types of scoring chances. And um, it's been a couple of years now in a row where I've watched tendencies that I wasn't even really, you know, hadn't really picked up on going into a series, even when I do the work and the pre-scout work. And then as soon as you see them exploit it once or twice, you're like, oh my God, they've identified this. Look at this. 
there's a delay here, um, there's, an, there's a tendency to reach here rather than shift, and they're going after it. And three games later, they're still going after it, and they're having success against it. And so you combine their ability to do that with the fact that Brassois actually comes out of their system, that their goalie coach is familiar intimately with his game because he coached him for years, um, dating back to time with the, with the Oil Kings before he was even in the Edmonton system. And, and, and you got to wonder how much that goaltending or how long that goaltending advantage on paper will last for the Vegas Golden Knights. Did uh, Stuart Skinner send you a uh, personal thank you for uh, telling everybody that uh, it was or showing everybody that it was a broken stick and not not his fault? No, hey, listen, uh, goalie <laughs> union. I may they may be taking away my card for my comments about the uh, you know teams not relying on goaltending in the playoffs as much as they used to, but I get it back for that one. You know, it was really weird. I was watching the replay, and I, like I know, like he's not Mike Smith, okay. And there are times where he tries to do too much and he tries to be too much like Mike Smith, probably from having spent time with Mike Smith. But he's a pretty good puck handler. And the way his blade went over top of the puck, um, I just like he doesn't have enough curve on the, on the blade of his stick for that to happen short of something going wrong. Like, it, like that is not a 99 out of 100. That's a 999 out of 1,000 passes. And I just couldn't figure it out. And so I hit, I hit rewind before you know, before the analysis had even started and, and I saw that, that it had broken and gone over and I'm just like, when I, you know, I could see it on Twitter, people losing their minds. And I'm like, I, I mean, I, Hey, like nobody's caught this yet. I got to put it out there and be the first. There, there's an element of that. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a protect the goalie union in there. And, <laughs> and then it's funny because I wish I'd actually just let the play run a little bit because it would have been obvious to me as soon as he went to the stick to get an, to the bench to get another stick. It's like, Oh, definitely something is wrong here. And I'm a little surprised, actually, to be honest with you, that more people didn't recognize that. Like, mm-hmm. I think I think I even heard one person, or I was on TV, or which broadcast I was even watching because I was watching on my computer too, which is, you know, through the through the NHL TV uh, program. And it was kind of like, oh, he's blaming the stick. He's going to get a new one. And sure enough, there was a reason to blame the stick. And I've had people light me up, like on the CCM, and like, oh, how can this happen? Like. And it happens, and there's no way to know that it's cracked until you put your weight on it to make a pass because it's the only time you put that flex into a stick. And once you've got a crack like that, it's going to fail as soon as you do. Um, if there's a lesson out of this, it might be – because I saw people even afterwards like, hey, can't try and make that pass even if he doesn't know. And, like, you know, if there's any lesson out of this, maybe if you're Skinner, you lean on that stick a little more often during a game to make sure it's intact. But I think that was just such a complete fluke. It's not a spot sticks typically break either. Like, that's yeah. a pretty rare breakage spot. So, um, yeah, but happy to bail out the uh, fellow member of the goalie union and get people off his back a little bit. Was not his fault. You know what What I was impressed by was there was a play not too long afterwards where he played the puck and he played it with a he lot of confidence. He went up and got it. He yep. went and he played with a lot of confidence. I mean, to me, and it showed that he had the right mentality. I mean, that's the thing I was most impressed by. That happened, and he acted like it was nothing. And you know what? You know where that would have come from? That comes from playing with Mike Smith. Mm. And Mike Smith told me the story, and he's told many people the story now, but I've heard it for, you know, years and years now about the hit you know after working on his puck handling so much he went out and he made a mistake in one of his first games in dallas and then like the next three or four times the puck got dumped in he didn't even go out of his net to get it and he came to the bench in the next tv timeout and marty turco was like what the like what are you doing <laughs> he's like oh well, i made the mistake he's like you're gonna make mistakes that don't stop that from playing to your strengths 
at the very least, go out there and stop it for your defenseman. Like, get out there and do what you're supposed to do. Don't don't stop doing it just because you made one mistake. And so I got to think that's a lesson that was passed along. I thought the same thing, Sat. Like, he didn't try and do too much with it, if you remember, but yeah. he went out and got it. Mm-hmm. And that's what you want to see. We talk about mental strength, and you can't – I can see a goalie – I can see between the pipes and how they move and tactics and technique, but I can't see between their ears and their mental strength. But we do look for signposts along the way. And that's a signpost. The fact that in a tough moment after a tough situation, he didn't change what he does as a result of it. He went right back to doing what he would normally do. He didn't crave to the pressure of that situation or cave to the pressure of that situation. He just went out and executed and trusted that the next time it would, you know, he would be just fine. And, um, you know, for all the talk about his numbers slipping in that first round, I'm actually not overly worried about him because his approach throughout, even the way he bounced back from getting pulled, the interviews he did the following day, you know, in, in a media landscape where teams are hiding goalies from the media, um, where they're not making them available, you know, hardly at all. And especially in tough moments, he came out and talked about growth mindset and learning from it. And I think that's one thing that's impressed me from Stuart Skinner, to be honest, all the way back to, he was, he was a part of Team Canada's uh, Program of Excellence camp the years that I was there uh, as a video coach. And he was a kid that came out and sought me out looking for extra material and extra feedback um, at those camps. And it's kind of part of what I think, because Dustin Schwartz, the goalie coach at Edmonton, was part of those camps too, and they ended up drafting him after that, that one camp. And like, there's, it, there's, it's a really impressive mindset and mentality, and it's part of why I think even if, there are speed bumps along the way in the playoffs. I love that they went back to him. I wasn't sure they would because I liked how Campbell played after, you know, basically giving swimming lessons the first couple of minutes. He looked like a goalie again uh, when he got into that game. Um, and I thought they might stick with him. But trusting Skinner's ability to move on mentally, um, whether it's from that gap with the broken stick and the puck handle or from a rough start, like these are all good signs not just for this playoff run, but for long-term, if you're the Edmonton Oilers and he's the guy you're going to hitch your wagon to, you know, regardless of having signed Campbell. Uh, we got about a minute. Uh, who is Akira Schmidt and where does he come from? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know he played a few the, games this year, but, like, uh, you know, it's it's always crazy when you see a guy show up in the playoffs and, and stand on his head the way that Schmidt has. Very Cam well, Ward-like, yeah. Well, here's the one thing, though. Like, and I tweeted this out and, like uh, – when when I read that he was the first off the ice for game three, like, first of all, Vanacek wasn't giving, giving them what they needed. Um, yeah. You know, I think he still might have the most goal say goal say below expected, you know, after just two games in the entire playoffs and the lack of hesitation, like Akira Schmid, there were only two goalies in the entire national hockey league this year that had a better adjusted save percentage than Akira Schmidt, Linus Allmark and Philip Gustafson. So in a very small sample, this kid showed that he could do something. And I think also as you get to see more and more of him, you know, listen, like, like he's got a physical skill set. He's got a somewhat calm, quiet style of game. Um, there's a lot to like about him. But I think it's that lack of panic and that structured game and that mindset that leads you to believe he could handle the moment. The physical tools are there. The results were there. The only question was, could he repeat them in this environment? And obviously the Devils know him better than us. And they had faith that that was the case and that he could translate those results, you know, into, into a playoff environment. I'm serious. I'm curious to see if he can keep it up. Uh, I think for sure there were things the Rangers didn't do um, that with time, other teams will try and attack. Like I look at game seven, like in game six, they had good results going top glove. 
So all of a sudden in game seven, that's all they're doing is going top glove. And he was sitting on it. And I think if, you know, like in my, in my pre-scout for this round, like if you make him move east-west and then you're like in a one-timer situation or a low-high play and he's in transition, high glove all day because when he moves, he lowers his hand. But in the one-on-one situations, they got themselves partial breakaways down the wing, things like that in game seven. He holds his glove with the fingers up, almost like he's holding it out like to say stop, right, like a stop sign. And in one-on-one situations, you've got to attack that with shots low glove, and they just didn't. They kept shooting it right back up into his coverage. And then late in the game on a lateral play, I think it was Trocek. You know, again, he's moving, the hands are down, and he shoots it low glove. Like, I'm just like, where was the pre-scout? I don't know if it was there and there was a lack of execution or if the pre-scout just wasn't there. But those are the types of things that as the playoffs go on, other teams become intimately familiar with them. And the book on Akira Schmid will grow and teams will try and target those things. And there's going to need to be an adjustment by him because – if you just keep doing what you're doing and you're not willing to adjust, eventually you'll get exposed. Um, I think there's a good enough goalie there that I don't expect that exposure to be, you know, severe because um, he's got a steady sort of base to work from. But, like, to expect him to perform at the level he did all season in a small sample and to continue as the playoffs go on, that might be a big ask. Then again, if you're the New Jersey Devils and you're scoring four night, you don't need it. Uh, he's in tonight against uh, Freddie Anderson for the Carolina Hurricanes. That game uh, starting up in just a few minutes. Uh, Woodley, always appreciate the time. Thank you. You're welcome. And, hey, Carolina, I will bet you good money we see both goalies in this series, even if Freddie Anderson plays really well. Yeah, All right. We'll take that one. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Woodley. Thanks, guys. Uh, there he is, the best in the business, in Gold Magazine and NHL.com, Kevin Woodley. Not enough time, honestly. Like there, We didn't even, even get into the Carolina stuff. There's other things to follow up on in terms of goaltending. Just incredible insight. The Stuart Skinner stuff, I was just so impressed. And, and I was interested to hear yeah. uh, Woodley about it as well, because that happens, you probably want to crawl into a hole. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, that's what makes me more confident about Edmonton. It's like, even if he's not perfect, he's going to be able to bounce back. Yeah. He's uh, he's got a good head on his shoulders, yes. especially for a goalie. Like, yeah, you really need that because some things aren't uh, they're just not going to go your way. Akira Schmid, uh, Switzerland born, uh, but uh, a lot of questions about his name, Akira, where yes. it came from. Uh, his dad was apparently a big Dragon Dragon Ball Z fan. So uh, really, yeah, him and his brother are <laughs> named gotta... after uh, Dragon Ball Z characters. <laughs> that is tremendous. <laughs> it's a great story I read today. It's that incredible. Is... What's his brother's name? Uh, I forget right now. All right. <laughs> well, we're very late. Uh, all right. Overrated, underrated is next on Canuck Central.